0: So, today I have something different for you. I have an audiobook preview. The book I did with Majid Nawaz, Islam and the Future of Tolerance, a Dialogue, has just been released as an audiobook. And in this podcast, you'll hear about a half hour of the audiobook and about a half hour of the postscript that we recorded, especially for the release of the audiobook. This postscript was not part of the the hardcover. And in it, we answer reader questions and talk about how the book has been received and deal with some of our critics. But you'll hear, I hope, that this book was really made to be an audiobook. It is, in fact, a dialogue. Of course, you'll hear the distinction between our reading this dialogue rather than merely producing it extemporaneously. But the fact that we're reading it allows us to be precise. And on this topic, more than many others, I think precision is now the key. In the postscript, we just have a conversation, much more like a podcast conversation, and you'll hear about a half hour of that as well. In any case, this was a hugely gratifying collaboration for me. I'm just so happy to have connected with Majid, to have started this dialogue, to have produced this audiobook and, and the print edition, and uh, to now be able to call him a friend. It's just It's been a win just across the board for me. Now, unfortunately, I don't think the problems we discuss in this book are going away anytime soon. I think Majid's voice in particular is going to be increasingly relevant in the years to come. But I'm just very happy to have started this dialogue, and I look forward to collaborating with him in any way that I can in the future that will be useful. And you all can support our efforts by listening to the book or reading it and talking about it or blogging about it and sharing it with others. So now I give you a preview of the audio edition of Islam and the Future of Tolerance, a dialogue by Sam Harris and Majid Nawaz. Read by the authors. Majid, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. I think the work you're doing is extremely important. I'm not sure how much we agree about Islam or about the prospects of reforming the faith, and it will be useful to uncover any areas where we diverge, but I want you to know that my primary goal is to support you. That's very kind of you.
1: I appreciate that. As you know, we are working in a very delicate area, walking a tightrope and attempting to bring with us a lot of people who, in many instances, do not want to move forward. It is very important that we have this conversation in
0: as responsible a way as possible. Agreed. I'd like to begin by recalling the first time we met, because it was a moment when you seemed to be walking this tightrope. It was, in fact, a rather inauspicious first meeting. In October 2010, I attended the Intelligence Squared debate in which you were pitted against my friends Ayan Hirsi Ali and Douglas Murray. We met afterward at a dinner for the organizers, participants, and other guests. People were offering short remarks about the debate and otherwise continuing the discussion. And at one point Ayan said, I'd like to know whether Sam Harris has anything to say. Although I was well into a vodka tonic at that moment, I remember what I said more or less verbatim. I addressed my remarks directly to you. We hadn't been introduced, and I don't think you had any idea who I was. I said essentially this. Majid, I have a question for you. It seems to me that you have a nearly impossible task, and yet much depends on your being able to accomplish it. You want to convince the world, especially the Muslim world, that Islam is a religion of peace that has been hijacked by extremists. But the problem is, Islam isn't a religion of peace, and the so-called extremists are seeking to implement what is arguably the most honest reading of the faith's actual doctrine. So your maneuvers on the stage tonight, the claims you made about interpretations of Scripture, and the historical context in which certain passages of the Quran must be understood, appear disingenuous. Everyone in this room recognizes that you have the hardest job in the world, and everyone is grateful that you're doing it. Someone has to try to reform Islam from within, and it's obviously not going to be an apostate like Ayan, or infidels like Douglas and me. But the path of reform appears to be one of pretense. You seem obliged to pretend that the doctrine is something other than it is. For instance, you must pretend that jihad is just an inner spiritual struggle, whereas it's primarily a doctrine of holy war. I'd like to know whether this is, in fact, the situation as you see it. Is the path forward a matter of pretending that certain things are true, long enough and hard enough so as to make them true? I should reiterate that I was attempting to have this conversation with you in a semi-public context. We weren't being recorded, as far as I know, but there were still around 75 people in the room listening to us. I'm wondering if you remember my saying these things, and whether you recall your response at the time.
1: Yes, I do remember that. I'm glad you reminded me of it. I hadn't made the connection with you. I'm also grateful you mentioned that although we were not on air, many others were present. To my mind, it was just as important inside that room as outside of it for people to take what I was saying at face value. In fact... My desire to impact Muslim minority societies with my message is just as strong as my desire to impact Muslim majority societies. Part of what I seek to do is build a mainstream coalition of people who are singing from the same page. That doesn't require that they all become Muslim or non-Muslim. On the contrary, what can unite us is a set of religion-neutral values. By focusing on the universality of human, democratic and secular in the British and American sense of this word, values we can arrive at some common ground. It follows that all audiences need to hear this message. Even inside that room, therefore, the stakes were high. To lose that audience would be to realize my fear. The polarization of this debate between those who insist that Islam is a religion of war and proceed to engage in war for it, and those who insist that Islam is a religion of war and proceed to engage in war against it. That would be an intractable situation. Now. Moving to the specifics of your question, I responded in the way I did because I felt you were implying that I was engaging in pretense by arguing that Islam is a religion of peace. If I remember correctly, you said, it's understandable in the public context, but here in this room, can't you just be honest with us? Yes, that's exactly what I said. Yes. Can't you just be honest with us in here, implied that I hadn't been honest out there. My honest view is that Islam is not a religion of war or of peace. It's a religion. Its sacred scripture, like those of other religions, contains passages that many people would consider extremely problematic. Likewise, all scriptures contain passages that are innocuous. Religion doesn't inherently speak for itself. No scripture, no book, no piece of writing has its own voice. I subscribe to this view whether I'm interpreting Shakespeare or interpreting religious scripture. So I wasn't being dishonest in saying that Islam is a religion of peace. I've subsequently had an opportunity to clarify at the Richmond Forum, where Ayan and I discussed this again. Scripture exists, human beings interpret it. At Intelligence Squared, being under the unnatural constraints of a debate motion, I asserted that Islam is a religion of peace simply because the vast majority of Muslims today do not subscribe to it being a religion of war. If it holds that Islam is only what its adherents interpret it to be, then it is currently a religion of peace. Part of our challenge is to galvanize and organize this silent majority against jihadism so that it can start challenging the narrative of violence that has been popularized by the organized minority currently dominating the discourse. This is what I was really trying to argue in the Intelligence Squared debate. But the motion forced me to take a side. War or peace? I chose peace.
0: I understand. My interest in recalling that moment is not to hold you accountable to your original answer to me. And it may be that your thinking has evolved to some degree but our conversation broke down quite starkly at that point. I don't remember how we resolved it. I don't remember that we did resolve it. Well, let's proceed in a spirit of greater optimism than may seem warranted by our first meeting, because we have a lot to talk about. However, before we dive into these issues, I think we should start with your background, which is fascinating. Your Islamism seems to have been primarily political, born of some legitimate grievances, primarily racial injustice, that you began to view through the lens of Islam. But you haven't said, as members of al-Qaeda do, that you were incensed by the sacrilege of infidel boots on the ground near Muslim holy sites on the Arabian Peninsula. To what degree did religious beliefs, a desire for martyrdom, for instance, motivate you and your fellow Islamists? And if no such ideas were operative, can you discuss the religious difference between a revolutionary Islamist outlook and a jihadist one? Yes, sure, of course.
1: There are indeed similarities and differences between Islamism and jihadism. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The same applies when we look at, say, communism. Socialists are on one end and communists on the other. Some are militant and some aren't. It's the same with Islamism. Now, I've argued that the motivation for Islamists and jihadists is ideological dogma fed to them by charismatic recruiters who play on a perceived sense of grievance and an identity crisis. In fact, I believe that four elements exist in all forms of ideological recruitment. A grievance narrative, whether real or perceived, an identity crisis, a charismatic recruiter, and ideological dogma. The dogma's narrative is its propaganda. The difference between Hizb tahrir and al-Qaeda is akin to the dispute within communism as to whether change comes from direct action and conflict. If you take the theory of dialectical materialism in communism and whether we should step back and allow the course of history to carve its own way or intervene to affect it, purists of that theory will argue that you don't have to do anything that the means of production will naturally shift from the bourgeoisie to the workers. And any intervention is futile, because that's just the way history works. Others will say we must take direct action. Such differences on a theoretical level also exist between Islamists of the political, or entryist, type, those of the revolutionary type, and jihadists. Of course, jihadists believe in taking direct action. They have an entire theory around that. I'd argue, in fact, that the rise of the so-called Islamic State under Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi does somewhat vindicate Osama bin Laden's strategy and his belief that making the West intervention-weary through war would lead to a power vacuum in the Middle East and that the West would abandon its support for Arab despots, which would lead to the crumbling of despotic regimes. From the ashes of that would rise an Islamic state. Bin Laden said this
0: 11 years ago, and it's uncanny how the Arab uprisings have turned out. What I'm trying to get at is the religious distinction I think I detect between the type of Islamist you were having been the victim of violent prejudice in the UK and becoming politically radicalized by Islam, and someone who may or may not have similar grievances, but decides to go fight for a group like the Islamic State because he genuinely believes that he's participating in a cosmic war against evil and will either spread the one true faith to the ends of the earth or get himself martyred in the process. Were you thinking about the prospects of your own martyrdom? Or was your Islamism more a matter of politics and ordinary grievances? I suppose I'm trying to say that although there's a difference in methodology,
1: all Islamists believe they're engaged in a cosmic struggle, but this cosmic struggle isn't
0: the only reason they're doing it. Perhaps I'm giving too much credit to critics of my views on this topic, but let me bend over backward once more. I'm imagining, as so many people insist is the case, that some significant percentage of highly dedicated Islamists are purely political, in that they're motivated by terrestrial concerns, and are simply using Islam as the banner under which to promote their cause. Aren't there Islamists who don't believe in the metaphysics of martyrdom? We would simply call them insincere. Insincere
1: people exist in any movement and under any ideology. But if we're going to look at what Islamists subscribe to, Obviously, we have to discount the minority who are Machiavellian and join only because they want something else out of it. But if you consider those who are sincere, and I was sincere in what I used to believe, you'll find that they're prepared for martyrdom. I had to face torturers in Egypt and thought I was going to die for my cause. In that sense, all sincere Islamists believe they're engaged in a cosmic struggle for good against evil. And they define good as a holy struggle. But again, to emphasize, that is not the only thing they believe. Though they do certainly believe in martyrdom, they also believe in the evils of Western imperialism. Likewise, they believe that they're living under Arab dictators. The grievance narrative kicks in, as I said, prior to the point of recruitment. But at the point of recruitment, this grievance narrative is fossilized by ideological dogma, which then becomes the vehicle through which they express themselves. So it's not one or the other, but certainly the cosmic struggle is a consistent element for all Islamists. Another difference between jihadists and Islamists is that Islamists will seek martyrdom according to their own theory. So in Hizb ut tahrir we were taught that martyrdom is achieved by being killed while holding a despotic ruler to account or spreading the ideology. We were taught that if the regime kills you while you're attempting to recruit army officers, you'll be a martyr, and you should embrace that. But we were also taught that you're not a martyr if you blow yourself up in a marketplace because you're killing civilians and other Muslims. Now, Whereas Hizb ut tahrir was attempting to incite coups by the existing army, jihadists simply said, Why don't we create our own army? Why are we bothering with these guys who are infidels anyway? For jihadists, to die while fighting for their own army is martyrdom. That is the difference. As long as you're dying in accordance with the
0: view you subscribe to, you're a martyr in the eyes of your group. So you wouldn't distinguish between jihadists and other Islamists as to the degree of religious conviction? For instance, their level of certainty about the existence of paradise, or the reality of martyrdom. The difference is purely a matter of methodology? Yes. Some jihadists are not pious in the sense
1: of having firm religious convictions. They simply prefer the violence, the direct action, so they're attracted to those groups. Yet some Islamists are incredibly pious and sincerely believe in the holiness of their political cause. So piety, or the lack of it, and religious sincerity, or the
0: lack of it, fluctuates between and within and among groups. This is all fascinating, and again, extremely useful to spell out. But we should clarify another point here, because the line between piety and its lack may not be detectable in the way that many of our listeners expect. For instance, it's often suggested that the 9-11 hijackers couldn't have been true believers because they went to strip clubs before they carried out their suicide mission. However, to me, there's absolutely no question that these men believe they were bound for paradise. I think many people are confused about the connection between outward observance and belief. That's right. The 9-11 hijackers were not suicidally depressed people who went to strip clubs and then just decided to kill themselves along with thousands of innocent strangers. Whether or not they went to strip clubs, or appeared pious in any other way, these men were true believers. Yes, the strip club thing is a red herring, because even in a traditional view of jihad, when you
1: believe you're engaged in an act of war, you're allowed to deceive the enemy. So whether it's espionage or going undercover or war propaganda within traditional thinking as revived by modern jihadism, it's permissible during war. The 9-11 hijackers being seen in strip clubs is, however, relevant for use in propaganda against them. Most conservative Western Muslims who do not think they're at war with their own countries would find such behaviour immoral. But you're absolutely right to say that it's not indicative of the hijacker's religious convictions or lack thereof. This confusion between supposed jihadist religiosity and sex should be clearer now after the world has witnessed Boko Haram and the Islamic State's enslavement and mass rape of women. It is not necessarily accurate to assume that, say, the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood are somehow less pious than the leaders of, say, the Islamic State. More violence does not necessarily equate with greater religious conviction. Each group is deeply convinced of its approach to achieving Islamism in society, and both face much danger in the pursuit of that goal but they differ in methodology, and they very much despise each other, just as Trotsky and Stalin eventually did. That didn't mean one was less a communist than the other. They had a factional dispute within their ideology. Some people misunderstand such disputes within Islamism. They argue, what do you mean, Islamism? There's no such thing. The Muslim Brotherhood hates groups like the Islamic State, and the Islamic State would kill members of the Muslim Brotherhood. I always remind them That's like saying there's no such thing as communism just because Stalin is said to have killed Trotsky. It's an absurd conclusion to reach. Of course there's a thing called communism. And there's a thing called Islamism. It's an ideology. People are seeking to bring it about, but they differ in their approach. Degrees of religious conviction are not what will help us understand the differences among jihadists, revolutionary Islamists, political Islamists, and non-Islamist Muslims. Let's take Sayyid Khutb, for example. Khutb was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood and is now known as one of the founding fathers of the theory that eventually became modern jihadism. The Egyptian regime killed him for writing a book, which he wrote while incarcerated in the same prison that I came to be held in many years later. It takes a high degree of religious conviction to die merely for writing a book, and that, for the Brotherhood, was martyrdom. Likewise, Hezbollah Tahrir members glorify the death of their members at the hands of the regime, but not the death of suicide bombers. They prepare their adherents to be killed for trying to overthrow a regime, and they tell all the same stories about martyrdom and
0: eternal bliss in paradise that jihadists do. The only conclusion I can draw from everything you've just said is that the problem of ideology is far worse than most people suppose. Absolutely. But to repeat, ideology is but one of four factors, albeit the most often ignored. I would generally agree, although there certainly seems to be many cases in which people have no intelligible grievance apart from a theological one and become, quote, radicalized by the idea of sacrificing everything for their faith. I'm thinking of the Westerners who have joined groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Sometimes religious ideology appears not merely necessary, but sufficient to motivate a person to do this. You might say that an identity crisis was also involved. But everyone has an identity crisis at some point. In fact, one could say that the whole of life is one long identity crisis. The truth is that some people appear to be almost entirely motivated by their religious beliefs. Absent those beliefs, their behavior would make absolutely no sense. With them, it becomes perfectly understandable, even rational. The problem is that moderates of all faiths are committed to reinterpreting or ignoring outright the most dangerous and absurd parts of their scripture. And this commitment is precisely what makes them moderates. But it also requires some degree of intellectual dishonesty because moderates can't acknowledge that their moderation comes from outside the faith. The doors leading out of scriptural literalism simply do not open from the inside. In the 21st century, the moderates' commitment to rationality, human rights, gender equality, and every other modern value, values that, as you say, are potentially universal for human beings, comes from the last thousand years of human progress, much of which was accomplished in spite of religion, not because of it. So when moderates claim to find their modern ethical commitments within Scripture, it looks like an exercise in self-deception. The truth is that most of our modern values are antithetical to the specific teachings of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And where we do find these values expressed in our holy books, they're almost never best expressed there. Moderates seem unwilling to grapple with the fact that all Scriptures contain an extraordinary amount of stupidity and barbarism that can always be rediscovered and made holy anew by fundamentalists. And there's no principle of moderation internal to the faith that prevents this. These fundamentalist readings are, almost by definition, more complete and consistent, and therefore more honest. The fundamentalist picks up the book and says, okay, I'm just going to read every word of this and do my best to understand what God wants from me. I'll leave my personal biases completely out of it. Conversely, every moderate seems to believe that his interpretation and selective reading of scripture is more accurate than God's literal words. Presumably, God could have written the books any way he wanted, and if he wanted them to be understood in the spirit of 21st century secular rationality, he could have left out all those bits about stoning people to death for adultery or witchcraft. It really isn't hard to write a book that prohibits sexual slavery. You just put in a few lines like, don't take sex slaves, and when you fight a war and take prisoners as you inevitably will, don't rape any of them. And yet God couldn't seem to manage it. This is why the approach of a group like the Islamic State holds a certain intellectual appeal, which, admittedly, sounds strange to say, because the most straightforward reading of scripture suggests that Allah advises jihadists to take sex slaves from among the conquered, decapitate their enemies, and so forth. Imagine that a literalist and a moderate have gone to a restaurant for lunch, and the menu promises fresh lobster as the specialty of the house. Loving lobster, the literalist simply places his order and waits. The moderate does likewise, but claims to be entirely comfortable with the idea that the lobster might not really be a lobster after all. Perhaps it's a goose. And whatever it is, it need not be, quote, fresh in any conventional sense, for the moderate understands that the meaning of this term shifts according to the context. This would be a very strange attitude to adopt toward lunch, but it is even stranger when considering the most important questions of existence. What to live for, what to die for, and what to kill for. Consequently, the appeal of literalism isn't difficult to see. Human beings demand it in almost every area of their lives. It seems to me that religious people, to the extent that they are certain that their scripture was written or inspired by the creator of the universe, demand it too. So when you say that no religion is intrinsically peaceful or warlike, and that every scripture must be interpreted, I think you run into problems. Because many of these texts aren't all that elastic. They aren't susceptible to just any interpretation and they commit their adherence to specific beliefs and practices. You can't say, for instance, that Islam recommends eating bacon and drinking alcohol. And even if you could find some way of reading the Quran that would permit those things, you can't say that its central message is that a devout Muslim should consume as much bacon and alcohol as humanly possible. Nor can one say that the central message of Islam is pacifism. However, one can say that about Jainism. All religions are not the same. One simply cannot say... That the central message of the Quran is respect for women as the moral and political equals of men. To the contrary, one can say that under Islam, the central message is that women are second class citizens and the property of the men in their lives. I want to be clear that when I used terms such as pretense and intellectual dishonesty when we first met, I wasn't casting judgment on you personally. Simply living with the moderates' dilemma may be the only way forward, because the alternative would be to radically edit these books. I'm not such an idealist as to imagine that that will happen. We can't say, listen, you barbarians, these holy books of yours are filled with murderous nonsense. In the interest of getting you to behave like civilized human beings, we're going to redact them and give you back something that reads like Khalil Gibran. There you go. Don't you feel better now that you no longer hate homosexuals? However, that's really what one should be able to do in any intellectual tradition in the 21st century. Again, this problem confronts religious moderates everywhere but it's an excruciating problem for Muslims.
1: Yes, I'd agree with that last sentence. It's certainly an excruciating one for Muslims, because it's currently, and I've said this openly, one of the biggest challenges of our time, particularly in a British and European context, as witnessed by the sad and horrendous atrocities committed against hostages in Syria by British and European Muslim terrorists. We definitely have to acknowledge that anything we say could apply to Judaism and Christianity. But a particular strand of a politicized version of the Muslim faith is causing a disproportionate share of the problems in the world, so there are good reasons to focus on that strand. I don't dispute any of that. Just as a side note, you say that in the 21st century, we should have the right to edit any holy book. But of course, there will always be value in preserving texts as they once were, say, a thousand years ago, even as historical documents. I don't think the issue is the physical state of the texts we're looking at. This brings me neatly to everything else you said. I think the challenge lies with interpretation, the methodologies behind reform, whether reformists are in fact continuing a pretense, and whether this challenge is insurmountable. I think it's about approach. Let's start with this. You're very clearly speaking from an intellectual perspective. You're trying to approach this consistently. You're trying to approach this with an understanding of the challenges ahead and you're trying to be sensitive and not harm my work. I appreciate all of that. But you also have to recognise that you're speaking from the luxury of living in, were probably born and raised in, a mature, secular, democratic society. It can sometimes be very hard to make a mental leap and put yourself into the mind of the average Pakistani. I know many Pakistani atheists who, alongside liberal Muslims, are trying to democratise their society from within Pakistan. You and I can have this discussion without fear, but for them such open discussions can result in death.
0: Of course, and I hear from many of these people. I'm well aware that millions of nominally Muslim free thinkers are in hiding out of necessity. This is one of the things I find so insufferable about the liberal backlash against critics of Islam, especially the pernicious meme Islamophobia, by which anyone who thinks that Islam merits special concern at this moment in history is branded a bigot. What worries me is that so many moderate Muslims believe that Islamophobia is a bigger problem than literalist Islam is. They seem more outraged that someone like me would equate jihad with holy war than that millions of their co-religionists do this and commit atrocities as a result. In recent days, the Islamic State has been burning prisoners alive in cages and decapitating people by the dozen and gleefully posting videos attesting to the enormity of their sadism online. Far from being their version of the Mi Lai Massacre, these crimes against innocents represent what they unabashedly stand for. In fact, these ghastly videos have become a highly successful recruiting tool, inspiring jihadists from all over the world to travel to Syria and Iraq to join the cause. No doubt most Muslims are horrified by this. But the truth is that in the very week that the Islamic State was taking its barbarism to new heights, we saw a much larger outcry in the Muslim world over the killing of three college students in North Carolina, amid circumstances that made it very likely to have been an ordinary triple murder, as opposed to a hate crime indicating some wave of anti-Muslim bigotry in the U.S. This skewing of priorities produces a grotesque combination of political sensitivity and moral callousness, wherein hate crimes against Muslims in the U.S., which are tiny in number, often property-related, and still dwarfed fivefold by similar offenses against Jews, appear to be of greater concern than the enslavement and obliteration of countless people throughout the Muslim world. As you say, even having a conversation like this is considered a killing offense in many circles. I hear from Muslims who are afraid to tell their own parents that they have lost their faith in God for fear of being murdered by them. These people say things like if a liberal intellectual like you can't speak about the link between specific doctrines and violence without being defamed as a bigot what hope is there for someone like me who has to worry about being killed by her own family or village for merely expressing doubts about god so yes i'm aware that one can't speak in pakistan as i do here this raises an intellectual point and a pragmatic point intellectually
1: i don't accept that there's a correct reading of scripture in essence now You can point to many passages in the Qur'an and in a hadith, and I've certainly read them because I memorized half the Qur'an while a political prisoner, that you would find very problematic, very concerning, and, on the face of it, very violent. But, as I've said, to interpret any text, one must have a methodology, and in that methodology there are jurisprudential, linguistic, philosophical, historical, and moral perspectives. Quentin Skinner of the Cambridge School wrote a seminal essay called meaning and understanding in the history of ideas. This essay addresses the danger in assuming that there is ever a true reading of texts. It asks the question, does any piece of writing speak for itself, or do we impose certain values and judgments on that text when interpreting it? I personally do not use the term literal readings because this implies that such readings are the correct literal meaning of the texts. I would simply call it vacuous. Similar to the printing press's influence on the Reformation, increased internet access has facilitated a more patchwork, democratized, populist approach to interpreting Islamic texts. Now, the key for me, and this is only the intellectual point, I'll move to the pragmatic in a minute, is that if we accept that texts are, in fact, a bunch of ideas thrown together and arbitrarily called a book, then nothing in a vacuous reading of a text makes it better than other interpretations. The question is, Do we accept a vacuous approach to reading scripture, picking a passage and saying this is its true meaning regardless of everything else around it, or do we concede that perhaps there are other methods of interpretation? It comes down to our starting point. If one were to assume that a correct, unchanging reading of Islamic scripture never existed and that, from inception to now, it has always been in the spirit of its times, then the reform approach would be the intellectually consistent one. Indeed, we would expect it to be the majority view today. This approach stands in opposition to that of the very organized, vocal, and violent minority that has been shouting everyone else down. If, on the other hand, we start from the premise that the vacuous reading was the original approach to scripture, then the reform view stands little chance of success. There may be no answer here. I don't think this question has been resolved when it comes to interpreting the US Constitution or Shakespeare, or indeed any religious scripture. So. Pragmatically speaking, what can be done? If somebody in Pakistan were to raise with me the issues you have raised, they could be killed. In such a stifling atmosphere, what is the solution? I don't want our listeners to think that all Muslim-majority countries are the same. For instance, in the middle of Ramadan, in 2014, Turkey witnessed a gay pride march. A sensible way forward would be to establish this idea that there is no correct reading of scripture. This is especially easy for Sunnis, who represent 80% of the Muslims around the world, because they have no clergy. If a particular passage says, smite their necks, to conclude, despite all the passages that came before it and everything that comes after it, that this passage means, smite their necks today, is to engage in a certain method of interpretation. If we could popularise the understanding that all conclusions from scripture are but interpretations, then all variant readings of a holy book would become a matter of differing human perspectives. That would radically reduce the stakes and undermine the claim that the Islamists are in possession of God's words. What is said in Arabic and Islamic terminology is, this is nothing but your ijtihad, this is nothing but your interpretation of the texts as a whole. There was a historical debate about whether or not the doors of ijtihad were closed. It concluded that they cannot be closed because Sunni Muslims have no clergy. Anyone can interpret scripture if she is sufficiently learned in that scripture which means that even extremists may interpret scripture. The best way to undermine extremists' insistence that truth is on their side is to argue that theirs is merely one way of looking at things. The only truth is that there is no correct way to interpret scripture. When you open it up like that, you're effectively saying there is no right answer. And in the absence of a right answer, pluralism is the only option. And pluralism will lead to secularism and to democracy and to human rights. We must all focus on those values without worrying about whether atheism is the most intellectually pure approach. I genuinely believe that if we focus on the pluralistic nature of interpretation and on democracy, human rights and secularism, on these values, we'll get to a time of peace and stability in Muslim-majority countries that then allows for conversations like this. I wanted to also mention one anecdote which... Uh, for for those who are listening, um, I think they would find uh, uh, as as another positive example of why this conversation was so important. Uh, just today, I spoke to somebody who who's just started with uh, with Quilliam. In fact, the the world will know about this through a press release we release tomorrow. But I'm telling you here a day in advance that um, the, the, there was a, a group in. In Britain, known as Al Mahajirun, which was founded by Omar Bakri Muhammad, who used to be the leader of my former Islamist organization, Hezbollah Tahrir, mm. in the UK. And then he split off and founded Al Mahajirun. Al Mahajirun um, uh, produced none other than Anjam Chaudhry as its current mm. UK leader. And Omar Bakri is currently in prison in Lebanon after he had his uh, permission to remain in the UK rescinded. Um, it's now a banned organization under Britain's terrorism legislation. Um, Omar Bakri's son recently uh, was just uh, killed in Syria fighting for ISIS. Um, most of mm. Europe's support for ISIS has come from those remnants of the al-Mahajirun and their supporters across Europe because they then morphed into groups known as Islam for UK, Islam for Belgium, Islam for uh, and the rest of the European countries. So <clears throat> this group is pretty much responsible for producing ISIS uh, rank and file recruits from Europe. Um, a former leading member of that organisation, who left a long time ago before they were banned, um, he was Omar Bakri Muhammad's uh, one of his right-hand men in in the UK. Just today, joined Quilliam, and uh, there was oh, a f- there was it's great news. He's been on a journey himself, but there was a f- and the reason I mention it is there was a final doubt in his mind that was nagging away at him as to whether the term Islamism was was uh, was a pragmatic term that we were using. Or indeed had some substance to this point of the distinctions between, you know, because I, I argue that Islam is interpreted in many different ways and 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 Sufis interpret it in one way, uh, uh, fundamentalists in another, and Islamists in yet a third way. Um, and he wasn't sure, uh, he had this nagging doubt as to whether Islamism was indeed another, you know, phenomenon within the, the spectrum of interpretations. Um, and, and really, you know, was trying to come to grips with some of this. So I gave him an advanced copy of the book, um, because we've been obviously uh, working with him for a while to get him to the point where tomorrow we're we're going to announce to the world through a press release that he's joined Quilliam. And uh, uh, this conversation just fresh that I've had today with him, and he said that he really enjoyed the book. He said that 10 years of proselytization, known as dawah within the Islamist networks, and actually even within traditional Islamic circles, preaching, Um 10 years worth of Islamic preaching couldn't have achieved, in his view, what this one short 120 pages booklet has achieved. And uh, he's full of praise for the fact that we've embarked on this conversation. He is, um, and also credited the dialogue, which I think he's going to put in his statement that he releases tomorrow through Quilliam as to why he's joined. He credits hmm. the dialogue itself to finally crystallizing his notion of not not just using the term Islamism, but exactly what it is and why it's so important for us to challenge it head on. So there's been great progress wow. even on a practical level with somebody like this. And I just wanted to convey that to you just to say that there is some positivity that is already emerging around the fact that we've had this conversation.
0: No, oh, that's great. That's great. Well, that's, that's incredibly gratifying. And he's someone I would love to talk to at some point. He, he, I would imagine he would be a great guest on my podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. He's been on a long, long journey so we're gonna we're gonna get him settled in quilliam,
1: and then of course, I'd love to introduce you to him and uh, you can you know, you can pick his brains yourself as to how he found the dialogue and um what he intends to how he intends to move forward with with the work that he's gonna be
0: doing for us at quilliam Nice, nice well, this actually brings me rather neatly to some of the questions we've received uh, i'll I'll sort of combine two here that depart right from that point. Uh, one person asks uh, Can you say a little bit more about how you became de-radicalized and what lessons this holds for for waging this war of ideas? And another wonder is just how this de-radicalization process works from the point of view of your foundation. So, So how do you reach out to extremists or former extremists and is there anything problematic about that process so you're, you're engaging people who may be currently jihadists or you, you have to you vet where their sympathies actually are and is this dangerous so can, can you talk about the, this process of de-radicalization and just how it works and just what what the significance of those variables are of course let, let's take the <clears throat> the
1: process of de-radicalization first and just to break it down for everyone um Let's start with the center of the concentric circles that we discussed in the dialogue. So we take a jihadist, uh, you know, we take a committed jihadist who's prepared to engage in acts of violence, to spread the ideology of Islamism. The first stage of de deradicalization for that person, I, I would call disengagement. In this field, when we meet with jihadists, I was in prison with many of them, it's impractical to believe that they're going to go from a state where they're willing to engage in violence to becoming liberal humanitarians overnight. It's simply impractical. Mm. What we have advocated is that government has no place, in terms of ministers of government, of state, politicians have no place promoting anyone who's even still an Islamist, let alone a jihadist. And that, in fact, the criteria for engaging will differ depending upon the position one holds in society. So if you're a counterterrorism policeman, of course you must engage with jihadists. Because it's your job to make sure they don't blow something up, and you need spies among their networks. You know, so you, even online, you're going to be engaging with them
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to try and gain information from them. So, a counterterrorism policeman's roles and responsibilities are very different to a prime minister's, which are very different to a minister of state, which are very different to a member of Congress or or, or the Senate or or the UK Parliament, which are very different to a social worker's, which are very different to a mosque man. So, I think. That level of nuance helps us understand that, of course, a, a, an imam of a mosque has a religious role and duty, in fact, to engage with those who uh, may be extremists to make sure that he attempts to temper some of their extremist views. But a public figure, such as a, a politician or, or others, uh, must be inc- or, or Amnesty International, for that matter, um, must be incredibly careful when defending the rights of extremists not to end up promoting their views. Let's take the worst possible evil that people imagine in popular uh, imagination. Let's say Hitler, you know, I don't think Hitler should ever have gone through anything that would resemble torture. Now, if this hypothetical Hitler was tortured, I would say, let's not torture this hypothetical Hitler. What I wouldn't then do is if this hypothetical Hitler was released from his hypothetical detention, put Hitler on an Amnesty International platform to preach against the evils of torture. Right. Um, that one one is defending their rights, the other is promoting their views, and they're two di- very different things. And so the reason I mention this example is that of late, Amnesty International has fallen for this mistake, they've fallen into this trap, whereby they've been defending people in Guantanamo Bay from arbitrary detention, which I agree with. I don't think anyone should be arbitrarily detained. And yet, when they've been released from Guantanamo Bay, they've been organizing conferences and they've been putting these uh, former Guantanamo detainees on platforms without questioning any of their jihadist let alone islamist views. Hmm. Now Amnesty came to this late and they realized later on that that was a mistake and they severed all ties with the organization known as Cage in the UK which is a jihadist lobby group uh, for former Guantanamo uh, detainees but they came i think that to that conclusion I'd say about 5 years too late after one Gita Sagal who was the head of their um gender affairs division internationally blew the whistle on this, and they initially, five years ago, they dismissed her. She lost her position. And uh, it, it, five years later, they, they realized, um, after Cage held a public press conference praising Jihadi John, and they realized this was a, a serious damage to their reputation, not to scrutinize those whose rights that, that they are defending. So that distinction between defending the rights or even engaging with Jihadists to de-radicalize them versus promoting them is crucial. To understand. Now, as a counter-extremism organization, it's actually our job to engage with nasty people. It's not, it's not the job of a public figure such as a, a minister of state to engage with them. It's the job of that minister in state to promote positive voices for community cohesion, not to start, you know, putting on platform people that are going to divide communities even further. Mm-hmm. But that is our job at Quilliam. So we go out there deliberately to find voices that we would disagree with in an attempt to change their minds. Um, and, and And so when doing that, Coming back to the original thoughts of the stages of de-radicalization, the first thing we would do is an attempt to get them to disengage from violence. Um, this was done with the Gamal al in Egypt when I was in prison with them. It was known as Mubadrat al-Waqf al-Unf, which means the ceasefire initiative. That with a jihadist, they could maintain their jihadist thinking, but as long as they first agree that actually, let's call a ceasefire. While for the duration of the period that we're talking to you, let's agree we're not going to try and attack you. And that, that allows us to have the conversation. The second stage is what I call, the, after the ceasefire, it's what I call the disavowal of the theory of violence, which in the uh, case with the Egyptian jihadists, the Gamal Islamia, was known as murajaat al mafahim, which meant the revision and correction of the concepts. Now, that second stage is for, a, for when a jihadist not only declares a ceasefire, but actually theoretically agrees that violence isn't a correct means for change. However, they're still an Islamist. They still believe that Islam must be enforced over society. Um, and again, talking about practical steps, you're not going to get a jihadist to abandon both violence and Islamism in one clean sweep. Right. So these are processes and steps you have to take them through. So that, that, that's the second one. They they disavow that the theory of violence and that violence can ever produce meaningful change, which actually, you know, social socially scientific su- surveys and and studies demonstrate this um, in a, uh, through sociological research, that it demonstrates that actually those revolutions that involve violence end up becoming absolute tyrannies, and 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 that change or that revolution which happens through non-violent means uh, ends up being a lot more sustainable. Um, and, and we can we can prove this through studies. So the third stage after the disavowal of the theory of violence is to get them to begin questioning Islamism, the the ideology itself. Uh, get them to question the premise or the notion that Islam needs to be enforced on society in any way whatsoever. If they get through that third stage, they're still conservative um, Muslims. That's the concentric circle we mentioned in our dialogue of of the vast sort of bulk of Muslims who aren't Islamists, but are still uh, conservative, in fact, ultra-conservative by Western liberal standards in many of their social views. Um, and so they end up there after they've disavowed Islamism and jihadism and declared a ceasefire of violence. Now, that's where most of them will stay. And if they stay there, Quilliam can't take them on simply because, as as again, as we discussed, Quilliam doesn't stop there. Quilliam goes beyond that and starts talking about reforming some of that social conservatism as well. Um, however, if they do stay there, we do believe that they are no longer part of the problem. Even if they're not part of the solution, they are no longer part of the problem. So... Uh, We don't need to attack them uh, in that sense unless we're discussing things like arranged marriage or forced marriage. Unless we're discussing those sorts of social ills, which actually most religious conservatives would share, like, you know, gay marriage equality, then that becomes a different debate. It becomes a social uh, liberalism debate rather than an Islamist extremism debate. Of course, there's a stage beyond that, which is that getting them to become from being socially ultra conservative to becoming reforming voices that are willing to speak out. And the beauty of what's just happened with Adam Dean, is the name of the chap I just mentioned, is that he's gone beyond that stage where he's now willing to, to join Quilliam and, and speak out. Now, that, unfortunately, is a minority of Muslims generally, and especially a minority of those who are former Islamists. Um, and it's why it's so, it's so precious when we manage to get somebody to that next stage.
0: And is there any uh, security concern on your end in terms of how this process of dialogue gets initiated with Islamists and jihadists? I mean, do you, I, obviously you have security concerns as as, as I do, uh, mm-hmm. but the is there are there any concerns that are special to this task of actually reaching out to extremists? I mean, have you had someone try to infiltrate Quilliam, for instance, or is that something that you, you need to guard against?
1: There, there are plenty of concerns, and we've actually developed a model now whereby we we work through networks. So there are former Quilliam staff who, say, five, six years ago left Quilliam and went on to do what the process I've just described. That would be called, again, within our field, it would be called an intervention hmm. on a micro level, on an individual level. It's an intervention. There are people who left Quilliam and became full-time intervention providers, um, working specifically with these individuals. They're my friends. They're people that used to work at Quilliam and who are now, you know, basically doing that um, That primary contact. So I won't make that primary contact. Right. And actually, it's not productive for me to make the primary contact. Uh, the, by the time the person gets to the, um, they've declared a ceasefire, they've renounced the theory of violence, and they are reconsidering their commitment to Islamism while still remaining committed devout Muslims, I can just about come in at that stage. Hmm. Um, But my retweeting of, for example, the cartoon even makes that slightly difficult, but I can come in at that stage. I can certainly give them guidance if they were to move beyond that to the reform stage. So what we do is we work, uh, as I said earlier, like, you know, a a, a member of parliament's role would be different to a counterterrorism policeman's role, which would be different to a probation officer or a prison officer's role. Likewise, with counter radicalizing Muslims, there are different roles that each one uh, would play. So there are friends of ours who do those interventions and who aren't public, who don't have to take positions on things like gay marriage equality or or, or freedom of speech in cartoons, who are able to have those one-on-one conversations, but they are our friends. So when they they find someone they think has moved beyond a few of those stages, they then make those introductions. And much of the filtering process happens in those early conversations.
0: Right, right. Well, you obviously have a unique role to play here. Uh, This brings me to Our next question, which comes from someone who's obviously not a Muslim and not connected to this process in any direct way, and she's wondering what non-Muslims, moderates, liberals, secularists in any other faith can do to fight against uh, Islamism, and she's wondering what is, because she's looking at things like uh, FGM and honor killings and ISIS and the, the kind of obscurantism about these issues that we discuss in the book. What can a, a non-Muslim do here? Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will answer this briefly, but I'd like to put that question to you sure. as somebody in that position. I think everyone has a role. And like with the racism debate and with the homophobia debate, we don't have to be gay to defend uh, those uh, rights uh, uh, that gay people deserve and, and and challenge homophobia. We don't have to be of a minority background to challenge racism. And the beauty of democratic societies is that, is that they do eventually, maybe some years too late, but they do eventually respond to public opinion and pressure. And I think that just as was done, anyone who asked this question, I asked them to imagine the old civil rights movement and that debate, to imagine through our lifet- lifetimes, the gay uh, equality debate, And picture everything that's been done in that debate, the way in which friends or friends have had a role, writing, speaking, calling out bigotry when we see it, uh, simply accepting people. All of that's had a role in those debates and see the change that's happened through society and the way that change has tangibly impacted politics as we know it within our lifetime. So we now have an African American president of the United States, and both in the UK and Ireland and in America, we have gay marriage equality laws being passed. And that's because of the way in which norms and taboos have shifted within one generation. And I draw that analogy to say that the same thing can happen with Islamism. There has to be a whole of society or a full spectrum approach. And part of it is... Where non-Muslims can be in particularly can be particularly helpful is in challenging those that we've come to term the regressive left, uh, in making sure that those who are the fellow travelers and the apologists for Islamism are called out on their tolerance of bigotry and are explained to in instances where it could be productive and where it, where it can really lead to positive change as to why that's an unhelpful approach. So there's a whole society debate that's needed around yeah. this. But what do you yeah. think, Sam?
0: Well, I, I fully agree with that. I'm often asked whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about this process. And I'm really neither. I don't, I don't actually think about my views in those terms. I, I, I see what seems to me the quite obvious fact that things can get much worse or much better very quickly and in surprising ways, in ways that, that even very smart people who are paying attention can't always anticipate. So the kinds of changes you just discussed that have been very much to the good, the degree to which we've overcome racism uh, in the West and in the United States in particular, the fact that we are coming to the end of the second term of our first black president, that is a huge gain. And when you look back mm-hmm. you know, 75, 100 years and read newspaper editorials, even the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, they read like kkk pamphlets i mean they're just the level mm. of racism is just jaw dropping and so we you know while the mm. progress we've made on racism has always seemed deplorably slow and there's certainly more progress to make. I'm not saying racism is, is entirely Absolutely, gone. Yeah.
1: There's a lot more to do.
0: Yeah, but we, we still are, we we have made huge gains, and even I think even more startling, as you mentioned, that the the very sudden gains we've made on gay rights, where you know gay marriage was more or less unthinkable in the U.S., and then all of a sudden it's the law of the land, and you, you, you practically just blinked, and that that happened. And I think we may be making similar progress on on the war on drugs, you know, drug policy in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. things can change very quickly, but of course they can also endure for centuries to the immiseration of, of millions. So it's it's I think, and they can get worse. So I, I, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I just see no alternative but to keep putting our shoulder to, to this particular wheel, which is having honest conversation about the consequences of specific ideas, really the intolerable double standard we see in a religious context for bigotry and demagoguery and coercion. And um, yeah, well, I think we need to oblige people to speak honestly about this because all we have is conversation. We have we have a choice between conversation and violence, and we have to find the people. Absolutely, we have to find the people who who can be spoken with and persuaded, and do do that work in as sustained a way as as we can. And one of the things I'm hoping that comes from this is that, you know, I keep saying this. Um,
1: I'm drawing this analogy of that the battle lines have been redrawn. And I hope our conversation really cements that idea. I mentioned this when we did the joint uh, interview on ABC Late Line in Australia. And that is that actually the alliance here, I'm a strong advocate of this point here that the alliance globally uh, isn't along the lines of theists versus atheists. It's actually along the lines of universalist liberals on the one end and regressive left on the other who are allied with Islamists. Because both camps, contain believers and atheists. Um, of course the Islamists are believers, and you know, they have some of the world's most famous regressive left atheists in their camp. And likewise on this side, those who subscribe to the universality of liberal human rights values, and what I mean by that is in, in that those values uh, apply not just for Muslim minority communities, but upon them too. In an equal way, uh, treating us as equal human beings, without any racism of low expectation, as we discuss at length in the book. Um, uh, that camp also contains theists, atheists, believers of all sorts. So, what I'm hopeful for is that our conversation, if it can even if it can even result in one tangible shift in the way this conversation can go forward, it's that realization that, for me, of course, it still is a relevant and pertinent question to scrutinise and to interrogate one's metaphysical beliefs. But for the purpose of defeating Islamism and and, and the the challenge that we are attempting to engage with, I believe that's a second order question to the issue of first establishing, as I try and put forward in our dialogue, uh, secularism, democratic values, uh, universal human rights, and getting those questions uh, pretty much uh, that the battle for those ideas won in Mm. civil society as we seem to be winning the battle against racism and homophobia.
0: Right, right. That brings me to a question about the far right, and um, there's uh, several questions here. I'll, I'll consolidate them. One questioner points out that the popularity of the, the far right is rising dangerously in Europe. I mean, there's there's fascism of all types coming into view there, and much of this has to do with an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sentiment, and this is I can imagine this has only been exacerbated by the, the recent diaspora out of... Uh, the Syrian civil war, into Europe. So they want us to comment on the danger here, the the fact that the the far right is gaining so much support, and how we can preserve liberalism, not only in the face of of the regressive left, which we've spoken about, but in the face of the far more dangerous fascist right.
1: Mm, mm. Look, I'll speak from somebody who's grown up facing neo-Nazi attacks, violent attacks. and having to stand those down and having to survive without being stabbed or hit around the head with hammers by people that would pretty much identify with this new phenomenon again that's rising in Europe that the questioner refers to. And I think, it's first, I think the first thing I'd, I'd ask our listeners here to consider is that in both you and I, it's impossible, it's absolutely impossible in our engaging with this dialogue for us ever to sympathize in any way um, let there be no doubt that those on the far right are our enemies. Uh, we could never sympathize with neo-Nazism. And the reason is simple. Currently, the, uh, the, the those who bear the brunt of the neo-Nazi revival uh, in Europe happen to be Muslims. But Sam, you know historically as well that it, 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 it used to be Jews and it comes back to Jews. It always does, right? So it's simply impossible for you or I to sit here and have any truck with that phenomenon. Of course, we can get to what we want to do to try and challenge that. But our listeners should be absolutely clear and left in absolutely no doubt that we are anathema to their preaching in the first place. They don't care for whether there's a moderate Muslim, a reforming Muslim, a liberal Muslim, a gay Muslim. You know, what they're interested in is making sure that there are no Muslims. And that's on the extreme extreme violent end of neo-Nazism, which is, you know, exactly how Hitler wanted to get rid of any Jewish presence in Europe. And and so there's no way we can ever, ever, ever countenance that thought, both whether it's for Muslims in Europe, Jews in Europe or any other minority community.
0: Yeah, yeah. But let, let, me, let me just uh, spell this out a little more from my side, because uh, I'm someone who's hmm. often attacked as someone who gives comfort to fascists and bigots and other Muslim haters in how I speak about these issues. And uh, there was actually another question right on this point, asking just wh- what are the the responsibilities of the so-called new atheists to be careful in their rhetoric to avoid unintentionally giving aid and comfort to the extreme right, and how mm-hmm. you know, how assiduous mm-hmm. should we be in in distinguishing ourselves from both the the regressive left and from the the fascist or or nativist right, and. Um, I think some care is certainly warranted there. I think it's I think the confusion between my criticism of Islam and the kind of uh, of discussion I, you and I have started and true intolerance and bigotry. That confusion has been engineered rather deliberately by our critics Mm. on the left and in Mm. in a very cynical and conscious way. Uh, They're trying to defame people, me especially in this conversation, as bigots so as to make criticism of these views very difficult and, and, and reputationally costly. And so it's um, uh, it's a very cynical and conscious effort to engineer confusion and blur this boundary. But the boundary is quite clear. There's an absolutely clear difference between criticizing ideas and advocating mm. the, the, the freedom to criticize ideas and hatred and intolerance against people. And so yeah. uh, just to plant a, f- a few flags here where everyone can see them. Uh, you know, I have often said that, and, and and we spell out in our book that my criticism of specific doctrines within Islam take as their their first object of concern Muslims living under intolerable conditions of theocracy, uh, women and apostates mm, mm. and aspiring freethinkers and aspiring scientists and gays and all of the the minorities within minorities that you you talk about. I am very conscious of expressing my solidarity with these people, and I hear from these people all the time. And I think there there are no more important people in the world to empower and support than the victims of theocracy in an Islamic context and the kinds of reformers, such as yourself, who are trying to turn the tide against These forces. So, so the idea that bigotry is somehow involved here doesn't make any sense. And there are many different ways to see this. And I've spelled them out in other contexts. But I agree. We have to be very clear that there is a quite radical distinction between criticizing ideas and advocating freedom of speech and free thought and expressing a a racial or xenophobic or jingoistic uh, animus toward groups of people.
1: Now, I, I just want to also add here that you've been generous in some of your feedback uh, since our publication of our dialogue in making it clear that you felt uh, that some of your positions have been influenced by speaking to me. So I want to just take this opportunity to also perhaps uh, refer to a, a, a point where I've my own thinking has developed and has been influenced by our conversation and by people who subscribe to your way of thinking. And that is that though I use the phrase, the maxim, in our dialogue that no idea is above scrutiny and no people are beneath dignity that's the wording of the maxim that i've you know put in the in the in the dialogue but the actual substance behind that maxim is something that i've gained through our dialogue and has developed in my own mind in my own thinking uh, has crystallized to a far better extent over the course of the last couple of years speaking to not just you but people like Ayan hirse and others mm. so that that's become clear in my mind because of course there is, initially coming from the background that I came from and my own uh, journey through Islamism for 13 years, there are, also, there are always emotional residues that can sometimes be left over, which the human being doesn't even realize are there until one is forced to confront them. And so in my case, I'd like to attribute that partic- the clarity I have around that particular notion to what you've just said, which I've, I've developed as a result of our dialogue. So that, that also, I think, should be further proof, in fact, Uh, That Because when somebody is clear on a particular concept, uh, as you are, in the distinction between ideas and people, that clarity does end up rubbing off on other people. If it wasn't clear in your mind, it wouldn't have rubbed off on me either. Mm. Uh, And so I think that's important. It's important to mention. And we we say it in our our dialogue as well, but you're right. It is important to to re-emphasize because there is a rise of the far right across Europe. um, And it is our responsibility to continuously make sure that A, we're not confused for them, even though, of course, there is absolutely no way we could be. They, they, they also define us both as their enemy. Um, but b uh, that we uh, that we continue to challenge that, as well as challenging the regressive left. And ultimately, the truth is really that it's the, the regressive left are a form of fascism, and the far right are a form of fascism. So they're both really forms
0: of fascism, yeah. in my view. Yeah, yeah. The thing that worries me most about the left, I, honestly, I spend more time worrying about the left because it's much easier to be confused about what's going on on the left. The true fascists on the right just stand in plain view. You get them talking on any of these topics and they immediately announce their intolerance and their frank moral stupidity. But the left in paying lip service to tolerance and self-criticism and a, a disinclination to engage in violence of any kind. I mean, they, they, they seem like the benign and pacific face of the moral conscience of the West. And yet, when you mm-hmm. when you dig into the details, you see that they are apologizing for and enabling really um, inconscionable forms of suffering. Many people do this uh, without really understanding their complicity here, but many do it in a way that is quite callous. And so it's the, the thing that I worry about is that because the left has more or less abdicated the moral high ground here, specifically on the topic of political Islam, and they brand any critic of Islamism as a bigot or a xenophobe, we could be wandering into a condition where only the, the people on the right will be will have thick enough skins or enough energy to do the job and this is something i've been commenting on for years that is always alarming for me to find in the context of any Specific conversation that the only person who's willing to talk about the connection between specific ideas within Islam and specific forms of intolerance and violence may happen to be in that context a very unsavory person who's got direct links to anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism and someone who just has a an -hmm. an utterly checkered past politically, and yet on any given show or in any, any given debate, this may be the only voice of honesty on this particular topic. And that, I think, is truly dangerous because, you know, we have to anticipate what our political landscape could look like and would look like if we were ever to suffer a terrorist attack larger than than 9/11, say. I mean, just an you know an order of magnitude larger. Not 3,000 people, but 30,000 people. I mean, if you imagine how destabilizing that could be. Uh, now, I'm speaking in particular in the context of the United States, where we have a an ambient level of Christian demagoguery that uh, uh, is also worth worrying about. I mean, I could easily see that sane, secular, rational, even even committed atheists could be led to believe that in that kind of context, the only people they could trust are our own Christian demagogues, because they're the only one calling a spade a spade, whereas we have a left that has just run into the arms of delusion. And so that's something that that I'm very consciously trying to To prevent, I I, I want enough sane secular people to talk honestly about the problem of uh, jihadism so that we never are in a position of making a choice between a Christian theocrat and a truly confused and uh, therefore unreliable liberal to defend civilization from its what I consider the, the most pressing threat at the moment, which is global jihadism.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've got a Christian theocrat or an Islamist theocrat, really, and the regressive lefty would be defending the Islamist theocrat. The choices there are stark if we don't speak out those who hold the secular ground to be, let's say, sacred. Uh, You're you're right. If we don't speak uh, about this subject with candor, and I've witnessed this happen to Muslim communities across Europe, and I've witnessed it happen to non-Muslim grassroots communities Uh, Likewise, and that is that the debate becomes polarised because there is no secular, universal, human rights-based voice in the middle. And so what happens is, as you said correctly, those on the far right are the only ones challenging, in their minds, Islam and Islamism together, all as one thing, Muslims. And they're attracting people around them because they're challenging what is a perceived, it's a real and present problem that people perceive. But of course, they are misdiagnosing it, misdiagnosing it in many instances. And then, likewise, in response, the Islamists are able to say, look at all these racists and neo-Nazis and fascists who are criticising you just for being Muslim. You see, we told you you can't live with them. We're your defenders. Come and rally behind us. And, of course, the corollary of that is that the only society in which you are safe from these neo-Nazis is a society run by Muslims for Muslims. And, therefore, the caliphate is the answer. And just as these people want you expelled... We want to create a caliphate that will protect you just for Muslims and expel them. Now, it's not hard to see how if those two extremes are having that conversation and nobody from the secular center ground is attacking both, how, respectively, they'll each attract people around them because the half-truth, the sad half-truth in this narrative, is that there are problems on the neo-Nazi right. There are people who hate Muslims simply for being Muslims. And, of course, there are Islamist theocrats who hate everyone but Islamists. So the, there are real problems on both sides. Uh, but it, it takes an honest voice to accept there are real problems on both sides and not align with either of those voices and then start recruiting and building alliances and networks around that sensible center ground. And you, you, you've got it spot on there. I, I agree. If, if that doesn't happen, then the way in which that deba- debate gets polarized, we've seen that happen. Far-right groups have gained in popularity across Europe, as has Islamist extremism. Because up until now, that voice has been polarized, and the tribes are winning because there haven't been there hasn't been a concerted and organized effort to organize against those tribal divisions.
0: Okay, well, that was a sample of our audio book, along with its postscript, and it is available now on Audible, which you can access through the Audible website directly or through Amazon. I suppose there are other routes into the Audible universe. And beyond that, you can help Majid and I spread this conversation by blogging about it, talking about it, sharing it with your friends, responding to crazy comments on social media and in various comment threads. Uh, It really matters that you do this. Unless you join the dialogue, our efforts are wasted. So please do what you can to speak honestly and clearly and respectfully on this particular polarizing issue. And thank you for listening.